0: LegalizeFreedom.com
1: Greetings and welcome once again to LegalizeFreedom.com. I'm your host Greg Moffat and my guest today is Andrew Collins, who joins us to discuss his book, The Cygnus Mystery, unlocking the ancient secret of life's origin in the cosmos. For millennia, the constellation of Cygnus, the Celestial Swan, otherwise known as the Northern Cross, has fascinated the world. It has defined the layout of ancient stone and earthen structures both in the New World and Ancient World. Its cruciform star pattern is probably behind the root symbols of major religions including Christianity, Islam, Hinduism and Orphism. Cygnus might even have defined the placement on the ground of the pyramids at Giza. Why has this one constellation had such an impact on humanity? The answers provided by Andrew are groundbreaking, suggesting that in addition to its importance as a marker of the North Celestial Pole 17,000 years ago, Cygnus' placement on the Milky Way made it easy to imagine as the destination of souls in death And the center of our cosmological universe. Beyond this is the sheer possibility that inbound cosmic rays from the Cygnus constellation might well have been influencing human evolution for tens of thousands of years, a fact somehow dimly recognized by our distant ancestors. Hello and welcome Andrew and thank you very much for joining us today on LegalizeFreedom.com. Hi Greg, Uh, happy to be here. Now Andrew today we're going to discuss some of the ideas that you explore in uh, your book of several years ago, The Cygnus Mystery, uh, subtitle, Unlocking the Ancient Secret of Life's Origins in the Cosmos. Yeah. And to get us started on this, we can say something, I think, about the importance of the, the world in the sky, the stars, the, the heavenly bodies to ancient peoples. And it was very important yeah. to them And because a lot of their religions were based around this. Uh, so we know about this general importance. So perhaps you can say something about that. And then come around to why, of all the star systems and other heavenly bodies, Cygnus has such significance in the context of your work? Well, um, I think it really began in
0: the year 2004, when I visited southeast Turkey and got the opportunity to go to Göbekli Tepe. Um, This is uh, a 12,000-year-old series of stone circles with uh, uh, T-shaped pillars on which are carved in high relief animals, geometric forms and human uh, figures. And this place is quite literally out of this world. I mean, it's something which um, archaeologists had not expected to find. It's rewriting um, our understanding of the um, evolution of, you know, of humankind from the hunter-gathering world, you know, to settled agriculturists, farmers um, in the Near East. And, you know, the the cause of what would eventually be the Neolithic explosion or Neolithic revolution, you know, something big happened in this area. Well, anyway, I got an opportunity to go. I'd been looking into the subject for, uh, I think, four years up to that time. But I'd been studying um, the early Neolithic uh, world of uh, the Near East for, you know, 20 years before that. And um, I got there and, you know, um, I was there for about an hour or, or an hour and a half or whatever. And I took, a, you know, a million photographs, you know, and suddenly it was time to go. After I came back from Gebekli Tepe, I started to try and get into the mindset of the builders there to try and understand what it was that these incredible uh, enclosures um, were actually um, focused upon, because, you know, the twin central pillars in the the, the middle of, of these structures um, seem to be orientated north-south, and just below Gebekli Tepe, which is situated um, on a, a mountain, on the top of a, a mountain ridge, um, is the Haran plain. Now, Haran, the ancient city of Haran, which is Interestingly, where Abraham um, was said to have uh, left for the promised land, um, you know, traveling from there to Canaan. Haran was the home of a people known as the Sabians um, or also known as Haranians. And they venerated the north as the direction of the primal cause, basically the direction of God, the the place where um, essentially life came from and returned in death. Um, and that a number of other ethno religious groups um, in this region also venerated the north in a similar manner. So I wondered whether something similar was going on at Gebekli Tepe, uh, particularly as various other proto Neolithic sites in the region also seem to be orientated roughly north south. In the knowledge that the primary symbol of death and rebirth in the Neolithic, early Neolithic, Neolithic age was the vulture. Um, I was intrigued to find that um, on the Euphrates, the very area that we're dealing with here, Cygnus um, had been associated with the vulture. Now, normally this is connected with uh, another um, star group known as um, Lyra, uh, which is just next to Cygnus anyway. Um, However, I was intrigued because um, Cygnus itself is situated very prominently on the Milky Way. The Milky Way has always been seen as as essentially a road or river um, along which souls travel to reach the sky world. And Cygnus is placed on the Milky Way where it breaks into two separate streams caused by something known as the Dark Rift. And this is just a dark area right through the center, um, you know, along the actual course of the Milky Way caused by um, stellar debris and dust. So basically what it does is it breaks the the Milky Way in two for a short distance as you look at it in the sky before um, one of the legs, if you like, you know, peter out and the other one expands out and goes into the southern part of the sky and continues on as the, the Milky Way as a whole. The significance here is the fact that all the way around the world, is that various cultures and traditions and civilizations have seen the Dark Rift, and in particular its entrance in the vicinity of Cygnus, as a point of entry and exit to the sky world. So I wondered whether the, the, the people at Göbekli Tepe were actually focusing their monuments on that. Well, as I said, this was back in 2004, um, when there wasn't really any uh, good plans available to look at the, um, the the particular central pillars in the, the enclosures there to try and get their exact orientation. But I deemed that this was so important that I needed to write about it. So I began a book called The Cygnus Mystery, um, which was finally published, I believe, in 2007. And what I showed in there was that universally, Cygnus is seen as a point of first creation, a point of original creation in the sky, marking the entrance and exit to the sky world, which was seen as being um, visually connected to the, the, the dark rift, you know, the Milky Way's dark rift. Um, and this was present amongst the, the Maya of, of Central America, for instance. It would seem to have been there within Native American cultures, going all the way back to the Hope World, Um, who thrived uh, in places like Ohio 2,000 years ago. Um, It was present in India uh, amongst the different Hindu traditions. Um, It seems to have been there in ancient Egypt amongst the pyramid builders. Um, And it was there also amongst the megalithic culture of Great Britain. Um, For instance, uh, Alexander Tom, the granddaddy of archaeoastronomy, Um, worked out as as early as the 1960s that the central axis of Avebury was orientated towards the setting of Deneb, the brightest star in Cygnus, um, for a date of around 2500 to 3000 BC. And, you know, it goes on and on. And and the more I looked into Cygnus, the more I realised that it was a constellation that had been much overlooked, not only by scholars of archaeoastronomy, the study of our interest in the stars, you know, within past ages, um, but also by ancient mystery writers today. And there seemed to be um, an emphasis on certain constellations today, you know, most particularly uh, Orion, to the you know, t- to the effect that a number of other key constellations in the star- sky were being overlooked. One of those was Cygnus, and because I always like backing the underdog, I decided to call the book The Cygnus Mystery, um, obviously in the knowledge that there was already an Orion mystery and a a Sirius mystery, and um, it seems to do pretty well for itself. And a lot of people like it, and a lot of people say, I think you've got something quite significant there. But another important reason why Cygnus um, is so important is because... Around 15,000 BC, Deneb, the brightest star of Cygnus, was the pole star. The pole star today is Polaris in the constellation of um, Ursa Minor. Um, however, due to the effects of precession, the slow wobble of the Earth across a cycle of 26,000 years, the pole star actually shifts uh, in, in a cycle, a circular movement. And so around 15,000 BC, the Milky Way's dark rift, the entrance to it, corresponded exactly to the pole star, which itself, obviously, in, in astronomical terms, marks the celestial pole, the turning point of the heavens. And, of course, what's also there is Cygnus. So Cygnus, this celestial bird, was seen to be top of the pile, if you like, the top of the you know, of of the the Sky Pole, which is a device that is familiar to shamanic cultures around the world as symbolizing the point of link between the earth um, and the axis of of the cosmos itself, you know, the turning point, which was something that seems to have been very important, you know, to these very ancient uh, cultures and traditions, you know, in, in their ability to try and sort of control or get in sync with the... the the movement of the heavens themselves. So, you know, there was many, many different reasons why Cygnus was important. And I think it's something that's not just there at Gebekli Tepe or within megalithic cultures around the world or within religions around the world, but it goes back even further, probably um, to the Paleolithic cultures that created the fabulous Ice Age art um, in southwest Europe, Um, as far back as 15, maybe even 30,000 years ago, and that you find evidence on the walls there of astronomical themes that also seem to involve Cygnus. I mean, for instance, um, at a place called Lascaux in southern France, there's a a cave system there with beautiful, you know, um, Ice Age animals adorning the walls. But it would seem that the central focus in this pit or shaft, which you have to descend down into, um, a distance of, of something like about, um, I think, something like 16, 18 feet. And, you know, by a rope, Is there's this really weird painted mural that shows a, um, a bird-headed figure that seems to be falling backwards. In front of him is this wounded bison, um, and just below them is this pole with a bird on top, the bird's head matching that of the actual bird man. Now, this was executed by the cave artists around 15 to 16,000 B.C., exactly at the time when the stars of Cygnus, or Deneb in particular, uh, was the pole star. And a German archaeoastronomer by the name of um, Dr. Michael Rappengluck um, of Munich University worked out uh, and published details in the year 2000 that this panel represented the area of the sky of, of Cygnus and the, the different stars around it. Um, and that, you know, he saw significance in the fact that quite clearly Deneb was pole star at this time and that the beliefs of the, of the, the Ice Age cave artists, you know, somehow reflected this interest uh, in this particular area of the sky. So in other words, what was going on at Gobekli Tepe um, in uh, around 12,000 years ago, was a memory of of something that was already possibly thousands of years old by that time. They were inheritors of a tradition that went back to the Paleolithic Age.
1: Beyond that significance, um, the thing that really drew me to the book uh, was something that you got into in in great detail that I touched upon previously when I had Robert Shock on here and also uh, James Swagger from Ireland. And that was the significance of cosmic rays coming from certain parts of the galaxy, but there are not that many sources of them, and Cygnus is very significant uh, in this area, and the, the implications of this are, are quite stunning really, because the possibility exists that they, by influencing everything on the Earth, including life, that yeah. they have influenced the development of life and even evolution of life thereafter.
0: Absolutely. Well... Firstly, I mean, cosmic rays, I don't think there's any doubt today. I I think that that many geneticists, um, astrophysicists and and various other different scientific disciplines would be happy to say that they do affect human evolution. I mean, what happens is that, you know, cosmic rays hit the atmosphere. They generally break up. But those that that reach um, the surface of the Earth, you know, will also pass through us. And just occasionally they can hit, you know, the, 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 the particles within our, within our um, cells and fragment them in some way and cause mutations or deletions um, within the, the DNA structure. And this, of course, will change the, you know, the subsequent generations thereafter. And, you know, this could have caused everything from human speech to height to appearance Um, to consciousness, um, uh, intellect, intelligence, whatever. It could have affected all of these different things in one way or another. I mean, clearly, cosmic rays are not the only things that would affect it. I mean, there are other types of electromagnetic uh, radiation that the Earth produces itself, which could also, you know, fling out particles that will affect us in one way or another. But certainly cosmic rays are important. However, almost all cosmic rays that reach the Earth are what's known as positively charged. And what this really means um, is that as they come from their original source, they are affected, they're swayed and pushed around by the magnetic fields that they encounter. So that by the time they actually reach the Earth, you're not sure where the, he- where the hell they've come from. They could have come from the sun, they could have been bounced off the moon, they could have come from um, you know any any number of stars. Um, out there within the galaxy or even beyond that uh, in in other galaxies. However, a very few cosmic rays are uh, neutrally charged. Now, when they're neutrally charged, and we don't need to go into this in, in great detail, in fact, I'll be perfectly honest, I don't fully understand how all these mechanics work myself, but the neutrally charged cosmic rays are unaffected by magnetic fields, of which there are a lot of them surrounding the Earth, surrounding the, the, the inner solar system, etc., etc. Obviously, the galaxy itself produces magnetic fields that, that, are like, that, that form within the arms that, that come out from the, the centre of the galaxy. So, in other words, neutrally charged cosmic rays reach us without being affected at all. And because of this, they can be, they can be registered as to their original source. Um, and the way that we can register them is because they will come in cycles, um, cycles of minutes, cycles of hours, cycles of days. And these cycles are the signatures of their place of origin, which are usually things like neutron stars or black holes that are binary systems. In other words, they're in orbit around another star, which they're probably sucking out all of its energy. And the, and the orbit reflects the signature the time signature of them as they arrive on Earth. Now, with that background, back in the, I think it was the the 1960s, 1970s, um, that a number of particle facilities were set up at different parts of the world. And the idea was that they were trying to register the decay of a particular particle known as the neutron, I think. Okay, um, a proton proton decay, that was it. And the only way that they could do this was to situate them hundreds of meters, you know beneath the Earth, either in the middle of a mountain or at the bottom of deep mine shafts. Um, and the reason why they had to do this was to shield them from any possible cosmic rays incoming that would, you know, affect them in some way, would affect the experiments. This was the only way of completely shielding them, was to get hundreds of metres down, away from the surface of the Earth. So they were doing their experiments, and they kept getting interrupted by these cosmic rays, which seemed to come in cycles of 4.8 hours. And this was occurring at various places around the world, and the different particle facility experiments were comparing then notes to say, look, we're getting these problems. We keep getting, you know, these cycles of, of cosmic rays hitting us at 4.8 hours. And they said, oh, God, you know, we're getting the same problem. So a number of, of papers were published basically reporting on this and saying that the only source that had a orbit of 4.8 hours was this neutron star within a binary system with, with another larger uh, star, known as Cygnus X3. Now, Cygnus X3, as I said, it obviously exists in in the direction of, of, of Cygnus. It's about the direction, the, sorry, the distance is about something like 30,000 um, light years from the Earth. So that sounds like a long way. And yet these particles were not just reaching the Earth, they were penetrating hundreds of meters underground without getting broken up in any way. And, you know, only at this point were they basically sort of um, breaking up for the first time at the point where they were being registered by these experiments. Now, that made them extremely powerful, neutral cosmic rays. And okay, there was a lot of controversy about this because it was basically said that no cosmic rays are so powerful and so different and so unique that they can do this. Um, And they even because of this gained gained their own title they were originally known as, as Cygnons, but eventually the name was changed to cygnets, um, which basically means children of the swan, basically, and obviously the swan being cygnus. Now, there was a lot of controversy about this at the time, and, 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 and the debate rages today. However, a lot of smart-thinking scientists looked at this and said, you know, what is there about the Cygnus X3 that we need to know? And what they found was that it was also a major source of um, radio emissions, you know, on the frequency of, of radio waves, plus also it was pulsing out X rays and uh, gamma rays, um, infrared, you know, ultraviolet, and, and there was, you know, in other words, it was pulsing out energies, particles, and energies on a whole multitude of different frequencies. You know, it was obviously a very, very powerful object, but more importantly it was discovered that it was almost certainly the first known blazer to be discovered in this galaxy. Now, what a blazer is, is something like a neutron star, which is a a collapsed star like our own sun that's expended all of its energy and then collapsed in on itself to form this compact object, which is which can be either a neutron star a black hole um, or a white dwarf um, in this case it was a neutron star along its axis uh, its what we'd call its north south axis it pulses out these jets of particles that penetrate into the surrounding you know stellar medium for you know literally light years you know like these and, and anything that gets in the way of them it absolutely will destroy i mean it's the most powerful guns in the whole of the 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 galaxy now what a blazer is is when one of these guns are actually pointing towards this solar system in other words it's like we are actually looking down the gun barrel of one of these um particle beams that are being emitted by objects like cygnus x3 in other words it was firing you know, just like the, the experiments at places like CERN in, um, in in Switzerland, it was firing these particles directly towards us. We we're almost precisely in line with them. OK, so what does that mean for us down below? Well, firstly, let's look at our Paleolithic um, ancestors. Um, they are down inside the caves. You know, they're, they're doing their art. They're painting their, you know, the beautiful pictures. And they're doing other ritualistic activity, shamanistic processes. They're probably, you know, taking in, you know, psychoactive substances. Um, you know, they're 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 down there. They're doing that, and then suddenly they get a flash of light before their eyes. Now, what's going on here? Well, in the 1960s, in the Apollo astronauts, uh, sorry, the, the Apollo missions, the astronauts started to see flashes in front of their eyes as they tried to go off to sleep, whether they had their eyes open or closed. And they reported this to, um, you know, mission control. They suspected what it is, but subsequent experiments on later Apollo missions confirmed the fact that what was happening is that cosmic rays, which are obviously far more frequent as you get outside of the earth's atmosphere were passing through their heads Um, and particularly through the eyes and and the optic nerves and causing these flashes, basically as the particles were were disintegrated, they were creating like these flashes of light. And that's exactly what they were seeing. Now, this is what the the astronauts would say. We, We ourselves can actually see cosmic rays. If you were to put yourself in an absolute area of total darkness, like, you know, black out all the windows and sat down, guarantee you within an hour or so you would start seeing flashes of light now these are known as phosphenes now phosphenes are essentially flashes that are seen in front of the eyes Um, now these can be produced by uh, chemical processes um, inside the brain but they can also be the product of uh, electromagnetic radiation radiation reaching us in the form of, of, of particles or waves or whatever. And although the Earth produces the, this radiation through you know, certain types of rock, some of it, at least, is actually produced by cosmic rays. So that um, if you were in a deep cave, for instance, you know, if you can imagine our Paleolithic ancestors down there involved in some kind of shamanic experience... And remember, it would presumably have been total darkness for, for most of the time. And suddenly they see flashes in front of their eyes. You know, I'm sure that they would have seen this in terms of some kind of um, enlightenment or seeing the light or it would have triggered some kind of inner journey or inexperience or whatever. Now, although this is a perhaps a psychological process, um, I think that if it continued to happen, I believe that over a period of time they would have seen patterns. And if some of these um, phosphenes, these flashes of light, were actually being caused by cosmic rays deep underground, as we now know from these particle experiments, that one of the only types of particles to reach so far deep underground are the cygnets from Cygnus X3. I think that our Paleolithic ancestors would eventually have recognised the cycle that they were coming in, which is over a period of 4.8 hours, the cycle of Cygnus X3, the orbit of Cygnus X3. So in other words, plus the other important thing is that the cygnets from uh, Cygnus X3 also rise and fall in accordance with the appearance of Cygnus in the sky. So once again, I think that there would have been a good case for our Paleolithic ancestors working out eventually that these experiences that they were having, where they would see these flashes of light, occurred more frequently at certain times of the day or certain times of the year that they may well, I can't prove it, but they may well have associated with the position overhead of certain stars, most obviously those of Cygnus, And they were in other words, they would have been right to have linked that particular star group with their experiences deep underground, which is why they may have been portraying Cygnus on, you know, on the walls uh, within cave art. um, And the fact that they would have seen some special connection with this star group, you know. So beyond the idea that Cygnus is connected with the Milky Way, the the Dark Rift um, and also obviously the... um, the pole star obviously they would have also worked out at other times that it was connected with the source of some kind of enlightenment, seeing the light experiences, etc cetera, etc cetera. in other words, there was some relationship to their own um, you know inner processes of, of learning and connection with with the cosmos, which may have gone even deeper. It may well even have been a case that these ideas this connection suggested to them that this was the place of creation, that the place of origin, the place where the souls come from and return to in death. You know, all of this would have been bound up together. Um, and essentially, that was the story that you have in the Cygnus mystery.
1: Now, of course, uh, there was, there seems to be some evidence for accelerated evolution in the upper Paleolithic period, which is very interesting.
0: Yeah. Yeah, I mean... You know, this is something which um, various people have picked up on, that obviously there are points of acceleration. I mean, particularly, for instance, around 15,000 BC, where um, suddenly the the, the so-called Magdalenian um, cave artists start producing all this incredible, um, you know, cave art in southwest Europe, um, and that sort of flowers in a way which it hadn't done for um, about ten, fifteen thousand 15,000 years, you know, partly to do with the fact that obviously you're at the height of the um, the Ice Age, which would have affected right the way down to, you know, southern France and Spain, but also the fact that something else seems to be going on at this time, some kind of um, burst of inspiration. And, very, and there is a possibility that this could have been the result of cosmic rays. And if that's so, then how might this have taken place? Well, it could have been some kind of close supernova, which would have sprayed the Earth with with cosmic rays at some point. Um, it could have been some kind of um, activity from a uh, a distant uh, neutron star like Cygnus X three. You know, or um, it could have been something much more subtle than this. Because what I believe is that if these shamans were spending a lot of their time down in these caves, you know, on these, uh, these types of journeys, these astral journeys, these vision quests, all the rest of it, um, and that only occasionally they were being affected um, by these incoming cosmic rays from Cygnus X3. It's just possible that this may have isolated them from all, all of the, um, the mixture Of cosmic rays that were coming from just any old place in other words they were refining their relationship their link with cosmic rays and fine-tuning it to Cygnus itself Um, so in other words it could well be that some of the changes that were going on may have been specific to their attunement to Cygnus X3 now this is merely speculation I mean quite clearly it's something you can't prove but certainly various scientists along the way have singled out Cygnus X3 as possibly being one of the main places of origin of cosmic
1: rays that
0: affect human evolution.
1: Now, mentioned already that it takes 30,000 light years for particles arriving from Cygnus X3 here to get to the Earth. Um, so obviously, the period of time we're talking about historically, then the particles would have left you know, 30,000 light years before that. And by the same token, the particles reaching us today left 30,000 years ago. So do we know if the nature of the uh, particles is changing at all over time? Well, you see, I think what's important to remember is that
0: they are traveling very close to the speed of light. And obviously, the closer you get to the speed of light, there is a certain amount of distortion of space-time reality in the sense that, For the actual particles themselves, as they reach close to the speed of light, they're actually speeding up within their own journey. In other words, for them, it's only taking a matter of maybe 15 minutes to reach us as far as their own own view of the universe is concerned. So as far as we're concerned, it takes 30,000 years. But because they've reached almost the point of, the speed of light, as far as their, you know, their own journey is concerned, it could be said that they, it, for them, it only takes 15 minutes. Now, the importance of that is that they would have arrived here very much as they left Cygnus X-3. Not only that, but as they penetrate the uh, upper atmosphere, they're unaffected. And it's not until they actually penetrate through the Earth itself that there is so much density that, you know, they will eventually collide with a particle and break up, which is what normally happens to most, you know, if not 99% of cosmic rays that actually reach our own atmosphere. But because they're neutrally charged, they're able to penetrate much deeper into our physical reality.
1: Now, when I first read your idea, I thought to myself, this has got nothing less than shades of Stanley Kubrick's Black Monolith in uh, 2001, A Space Odyssey, in terms of some extraterrestrial force um, altering consciousness. And of course, when you look into 2001 and Kubrick was a very switched on guy and he consulted, well, obviously worked with Arthur C. Clarke, but he consulted people like Carl Carl Sagan when they were developing the ideas for the film. So this general idea is not new.
0: No, and um, I mean, Carl Sagan, I mean, I do actually quote him in the Cygnus mystery right at the end. um, And he actually there suggests that cosmic rays from some distant neutron star might well have um, affected human evolution. And I mean, when I read those words, I mean, he could have been speaking precisely about Cygnus X3. I mean, you know, the, the, the words that he said were so, you know, so pertinent to the discoveries that i was making at that time i mean yeah whether he was or not i don't know i mean he could have been talking about
1: any neutron star but it just seemed personal you know what i mean can we speculate at all about what physical or biological or physiological mechanisms living creatures including humans might be affected by these cosmic rays it's going to
0: happen either on two levels it's going to happen within the physicality of the body the physiological traits um and I have seen it mentioned that one of the possibilities is that human speech may have developed through certain mutations caused by cosmic rays. Now, that's one suggestion. Now, as to why scientists may have come to that specific conclusion, I don't know, but that's very, very intriguing. But the other way of looking at it is how would these affect the brain? You know, is it possible that they are going to change consciousness in some way, or change our intelligence, in change our um, our intellect? I think that's probably the foremost way of looking at it. You know, is it possible that the cosmic rays somehow update us in some manner? And if that's the case, how is that happening? Well, what they're doing is that they are they are damaging or deleting. Our own DNA and when that happens obviously there is some kind of consequence in the building blocks that create you know our offspring our children and their children's children and whatever it might not be something that comes out in the the generation where the cosmic rays affect it would have to wait for a one generation or even a series of generations before the changes became apparent I mean, how long, for instance, would it take for the human vocal cord to develop or to change? I mean, this may be, you know, hundreds of generations. I, I don't know, you know, but the fact that cosmic rays are possibly seen as having made that change, having triggered it, is intriguing, you know, and I find that. It's almost like um, that once it's triggered, you set in motion a pattern that could take many generations to complete. But, you know, because quite clearly we are here. I mean, you know, what's the worst that's going to happen to us um, if we're affected by cosmic rays? Well, in all honesty, the worst that can happen to us is that we'll get cancer or leukemia or something like that and die. So obviously, the, the most immediate effects of it are bad for us. But those who survive, who don't get that, presumably not just get stronger, as it were, but also they're the ones where their DNA might now be slightly changed. And so their generations will be developed in a slightly different way. In other words, they will have involved.
1: Whether it's at a, a purely physical level or whether we are indeed talking about changes in consciousness, this also reminds me of the... The downloading sort of idea that you referred to and the sort of relatively sudden nature uh, relates to the idea, the theory of punctuated equilibrium in evolution. That is to say that evolution isn't a very slow, isn't always rather a very slow gradual process.
0: I mean I'm, I'm looking at things um, from a slightly different perspective um, today because I'm looking at the possibility that electromagnetic, um, you know, radiation or energies could be affecting the brain in various different, um, manners. Um, I mean, for instance, geomagnetic fields, I think are something else that we need to look a lot more closely at as far as, as you know, uh, the way it affects consciousness, um, and intelligence and whatever, because there's no question that it affects certain areas of the brain when we're in areas of, of extreme magnetic variation, Um, And it affects areas of of the hippocampus, which is now known to have literally thousands of very tiny, minute magnets, um, you know, within it that are responsive to the Earth's magnetic field. And quite clearly, if that's the case, then we're in when, when we go into very high. Areas of magnetism is going to affect us in a way, and apparently the, the way that it affects us is that it opens up channels which block the brain normally so that um, it would stop things like you remembering dreams or inspired ideas or whatever so it, because it has this opposite effect, suddenly we 're able to to remember dreams more easily if intuitive ideas come to us we 're able to remember them. Um, and it, this is probably the basis behind the whole idea of, of dream incubation. The fact that various temples were created in the past in Greece, in particular, uh, but also during Roman times, even even in the UK, uh, for is that but, um, is that it's been found that at various of these dream incubation sites, large amounts of magnetic. Um, ore has been found, iron ore that that will affect the magnetic areas of the hippocampus of the brain. Now that inspires dreams. It probably inspires visions. And once that link has been made to the liminal, to the you know the supernatural realms, then you have almost a, a an access into a, a, an area of the subconscious which could just link us beyond that, to some kind of um, collective unconsciousness, perhaps even other types of intelligences that coexist with us, which may exist on a deeper level of reality. So, you know, these are the things on offer, I believe, both with the electromagnetic uh, radiation effect in us, but also, I think, with cosmic rays. And I think that what was happening deep down in the caves is something much more subtle. Yes, on the surface, we can be bombarded by cosmic rays. Some of them are going to cause us cancer. Some of us, some of them might even cause evolution. But I think that it's a much more subtle process that goes on deep below the ground. And I think that it was something that was unique in many ways to our Paleolithic ancestors, which is why the Great Leap Forward occurred during this period and that, you know that the the eventual change from hunter gatherer to more settled agriculturist occurred in this manner because you know something must have happened you know to to have accelerated evolution in this way and i believe that cosmic rays are one possibility
1: now you mentioned uh, dna a couple of times already and you do also get into the potential significance of so-called junk dna that's it, the huge portion of our DNA which scientists have yet to really figure out what it's for. And I've never liked the term junk DNA because it seemed to me kind of to insult our intuition and our intelligence that there would be all this sort of leftover useless DNA, DNA considering how important it is, how fundamental it is.
0: Well I mean junk DNA supposedly accounts for something like about 98% of our DNA which seems bizarre really. That. Only a, a couple of percent is actually used, you know, to, to reproduce the, the human form, you know, within our own offspring. But of course, if that two percent of DNA can be affected, it can be deleted, it can be changed, uh, affected in some way by cosmic rays. Do those cosmic rays also affect the junk DNA? Is it possible? And I certainly wouldn't be the first to suggest this that the cosmic rays actually trigger the junk DNA into some kind of activity. In other words, maybe they were dormant within us and have been, you know, maybe since the the the, the beginning of, of humanity. But maybe they're triggered so that some activity begins, maybe a change of consciousness or ideas, and that perhaps this was actually programmed into us. Um, as biological beings, that not all information would be given to us at one time. It would take many, many generations for this to happen. And that the trigger itself was cosmic rays hitting junk DNA. Uh, I find this actually a really interesting idea. And some people have even suggested that the junk DNA could actually have almost alien messages within it. And I mean, we're not talking about New Age you know writers or thinkers here we're talking about you know science writers cutting-edge science writers have suggested this and, and that's a possibility as well but
1: then of course you have to ask yourself well what is alien well quite i mean there was that <clears throat> recent film that some listeners may have seen um, prometheus which sadly was a bit of a car crash and a bit of a disappointment all over, but had some great potential there. And I must admit, when I watched the start of the film, I got quite excited about the sort of film I thought it was going to be, and it didn't really turn out like that. But it was interesting to have some of those ideas out in the popular culture, consciousness, so to speak.
0: Yeah, absolutely. Um, And I mean, obviously, if you're talking about Prometheus, I mean, the the, the main aliens in there were extremely tall albinos, um, which sort of reminds us of the so-called Watchers Nephilim of of, of the Book of Enoch that have a a similar description um, and were put forward by Zachariah Sitchin um, as, you know, sort of aliens that came here a couple of hundred thousand years ago to sort of um, uh, create humanity um, so that they could work in mines. Now, I do not believe that for one second, but you can see where those themes in that film, Prometheus, actually came from. And it does obviously introduce the idea that there may have been different types of races that actually existed on Earth and that some of them, their DNA may have been affected, evolved uh, in ways which are beyond our current understanding now. And that there may just have been types of, of, of modern humans that existed for a period of time. That had different mindsets, maybe different appearances, um, and that are remembered today in myth and legend. You know, like that, you know, the Watchers and the Nephilim,
1: um, and of course the Anunnaki of Sumerian tradition. And of course, tying in with that, different uh, races with different um, physical attributes and possibly different science and different technology that was out of step with maybe what was commonly known. And it's entirely possible that that science and technology existed in high antiquity that's the evidence of which is almost completely disappeared, but it maybe lives on in some of these stories. Exactly. And, um, you know, and I mean, this is one area that I um, have
0: been looking at very closely is where you actually have what appears to be technologies in the past that have developed out of nowhere and possibly did not even survive, you know, because there's, there's some evidence that we may have, um, Invented, If that's the right word or or known about things like aluminium in Paleolithic times. I mean, there's some small evidence of this and yet it died out. It it was not something that was passed down um, because I mean aluminium, for instance, um, was only officially discovered um, about 150 years ago. Um, And yet there is small evidence that our Paleolithic ancestors knew about this. And you think, well, how did that happen? You know, I mean, why did they suddenly get onto this? And it's not easy to create aluminium? It's not like just, you know, like iron, just melting it and there it is. You know, you have to do certain things to create it. Don't ask me what, I'm, I'm not a metallurgist. But um, and there are various other things like this, like about, 30, I think it's about 30,000 years ago, um, evidence of the use of, you know, aerodynamic boomerang. Um, In the Carpathian Mountains, I mean, an incredible um, example of this was was discovered in a cave a a while ago. And yet again, it's technology that did not survive because it was not something that was was seemingly passed down, you know, through the different Paleolithic cultures and, and, you know, passed on from there through to the present day. I mean, the the Aboriginal people of of, um, Australia, um have, had it but there's no evidence that what they had was a result of something that went on in Europe you know 30,000 years ago and There are many things like this. I mean obviously things which people like Eric von Daniken, you know highlighted in books uh, like chariot the gods uh, and many others that, that, that followed and that intrigues me um, because I feel that there are certain you know times when certain people are inspired they become almost like leonardo da vinci's if you like of the prehistoric age and do certain things create certain things that exist for a short period of time and then because that technology is is forgotten about or lost you know it it disappears completely again um and i'm very interested to understand where inspiration comes from Um, I mean, for instance, in the 19th century, a lot of uh, Christian um, scholars looked at the Great Pyramid and believed that its architect and designers had been inspired by God because of the amount of geometry and the mathematics and everything encoded within it. And although we might laugh at at such ideas today of these so-called pyramid pyramidiates, I like that idea because, you know, I want to know what inspiration is, you know. I mean, the guy that desired the Great Pyramid, why did he design it? I mean, you know, what did inspire him? You know, is it possible that he was, you know, not so much channeling something, but that he received his ideas from some higher level of existence? I, I find that very
1: intriguing. I read some fascinating research um, a while ago uh, that um, speculating that the ancient Egyptians may have used sound to manoeuvre the huge blocks of stone. And, you know, again, mainstream perspective just scoffs at that immediately. But it's an idea of, um, you know, we, we there are sound weapons that exist today. There's all sorts of amazing pro- things that you can do with sound at extreme frequencies. So, I mean, I, I didn't dismiss the idea straight away. I just thought, well, you know what? If that was possible, that would that would that could explain it.
0: Okay, well, I did a, a thorough study of this for this idea for a book called Gods of Eden, um, which I believe came out in 1998. And there are accounts of this, very consistent accounts of the use of sound um, to move large blocks in most continents of, of the world. Um, and I brought together all of the evidence for this, um, including some fascinating accounts from Tibet of um, Westerners actually witnessing um, this taking place. I mean, it, it, it's, it's a difficult one, isn't it? It is not it It I mean, because we can't do it today, we look at these ideas and poo-poo them and and say, oh, you know, it was impossible. But in the past, our ancestors looked at reality differently. They looked at their relationship with the supernatural, um, with higher intelligences in an entirely different way. The connection was absolute. Today, it's distanced in the sense that the church You know, um, Orthodox religions have told us that God exists out there. We're down here. The intermediaries are the priests and that you can only really communicate with God as in the divine through priests or through these intermediaries. Well, that's not the way our ancestors saw it. As far as they were concerned, there was an absolute connection between them and the divine, one that they could draw upon at any time, to achieve whatever. Now, whatever that, I mean, I don't know to what degree they could do this, but as I said, their their idea of reality was different. And I think if you put us back in their day, we'd start questioning everything, and I think that their abilities would suddenly almost come to a halt, because it's always made me wonder if the Tibetans, you know, were able to achieve all these wonderful things in the past, let's say stone technology, Why is it that they can't do it today? I mean, there's plenty of Buddhist monasteries still around, you know, Tibetan monasteries in Nepal, in, you know, in India, uh, in Mongolia, for instance. I mean, why aren't they moving blocks of stone now? And I think the answer to it is because they're too westernized. They think too much like us. And I think that they themselves, even though they might not admit it, have lost a lot of
1: what was their absolute connection with the, you know the supernatural around them oh yeah and this manifests itself some people say has actually got a sinister agenda behind it in this sort of you know a constant erosion of traditional spirituality and indigenous societies and outright attacks on them so it's to, to drive out what remains of this uh sort of instinctive in, intuitive knowledge
0: absolutely absolutely and but having said that i think that it's something which is still possible i mean You know, I I make um, no secrets about the fact that I I work with psychics and have done for the last 35 years. um, I think that they have something very valuable to offer humanity. And that's a a direct connection, not only with their their own subconscious minds, but with something that I feel exists beyond that. Um, And I feel very strongly that such people are able to bend reality just a little. Um, I mean, I've seen objects fall out of thin air. Um, I've seen psychics, you know, find hidden artics, which are artifacts, which they would have had absolutely no way of knowing that those those objects were there um, beforehand. It, it's something which science can't understand at all at the moment. We're getting close to understanding some Secrets through our knowledge of so-called quantum entanglement and the relationships of, of between particles that split in two and keep this link this communication between each other however um, it still doesn't explain a lot of things to do with warps in space time which are there you know and, and seemingly psychics can 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 achieve or occur during UFO experiences, abductions, things like this, which I
1: firmly believe are are absolutely real. Uh, we talked about the junk DNA being, you know, as you say, 98% of our DNA makeup. And that, of course, has an analogue in so-called dark matter, you know, great swathes of the universe. Again, scientists seemingly just say, oh, well, don't worry about that simply because they don't know what it is how it works and of course we're also reminded that we have huge numbers of uh, unused neurons in our brain a huge amount of brain capacity uh, possibly waiting to be tapped
0: absolutely yeah i mean you know i was just trying to you were talking about dark matter there obviously it goes on to dark energy i, I find it very difficult to know how to relate that to what we know about reality at the moment um, i mean scientists although they know it there, as it were, certainly as a theory, an idea, we don't know how it would affect things down here on Earth. All we can say is that there are examples historically and in the modern day where space-time can seem to be warped and that we seem to be able to enter into extra-dimensional environments. I mean, extreme gravity, for instance, has been suggested to be able to warp space-time. And if that's the case, and I mean, when I say, you know, uh, gravity, I mean the sort of gravity involved with things like neutron stars and things like that. And if that's the case, if that in some way rips the fabric of space-time, then it opens up all sorts of possibilities of what happens when this occurs, how exactly dark matter and dark energy fit into this, I actually at this point in time don't understand. And I don't I I honestly don't think that anybody really does. And I think that anybody that, that that thinks they does are probably using it just to their own advantage. I would like to understand and you know, I mean my favorite magazine is New Scientist, no question. I mean, forget all the, you know, paranormal magazines and all the rest of it. It's it's definitely new scientists, because, you know, I, I look in there and sometimes you get the most incredible weird stories written by science writers. Um, I mean, the whole junk DNA thing, the fact that it might contain um, some kind of alien message was actually written by one of their writers, Paul Davis, you know, for for that, for new scientists. I was absolutely amazed when I, re- when I read it. You know, in other words, that's the sort of stuff I'm waiting for because I'm waiting for the scientific community to know how to handle this stuff and show how it might relate to the reality that we know and are around us today.
1: You also write, interestingly, about um, rather different possible significance of uh, DNA discoverer Francis Crick's uh, well-known LSD experiences.
0: Yeah, I mean, you know, this was only um, made public, I think, in around two thousand and five, two thousand and six, um, and that is the fact that um, he that that his understanding of the um, you know the, the double helix of the uh, the, the DNA mo- molecule came to him whole whilst he was on an LSD experience, um, and you know although people you know this, this i mean his family tried to suppress this and even when it broke the the um you know the international media they still tried to say oh no this is not right and whatever but it seemed to be quite clear that that this was genuinely the case and this simply highlights the fact that there are a number of examples where major discoveries have been made by people in some kind of altered state of consciousness whether it be dreams, whether it be um, under, you know, um, you know through the use of some kind of psychoactive drug, um, you know, or meditations or whatever. I mean, the benzene molecule is another example of that, that was discovered, I believe, uh, under a, a similar state of consciousness. And I think that even Einstein himself, certain of his theories came up in, in dreams, if I remember. Plus, then you have people like Nikola Tesla. Um, and a lot of the... The, you know the, the incredible um, electrical machines and, and devices that he created were all you know all of them came to him through dreams and he didn't even bother to check out whether they would work or not he, he just made them in the in the knowledge that they would work which I find absolutely incredible you know so this this is it this I love this because there is some you know this shows that that it's the humanity and our evolution is not simply a product of survival of the fittest and you know just gradual evolution or oh, eventually we will invent this or we'll find out that or we'll evolve this no there's something else going on here whether it's to do with quantum entanglement which probably exists beyond normal space-time in other words Maybe we're picking up on what's already discovered in the future. It's just a case of completing the loop and discovering it now sort of thing. Uh, In other words, you know, somebody like Crick with the DNA, he was destined to make that discovery. It just had to do it. You know, it was out there ready for him to discover. He just had to be in the right state of mind to find it within himself. And, okay, it involved the use of LSD, but hey, you know that's how he how he found it, and the world is a, probably a better place for it. So, you know, I, that intrigues me. I, that that really is at the root of what I write about what I'm interested in. I'm interested in finding the sources of everything. I mean, why why was Quebecli Tepe created? Why was there this sudden change from um, you know, using cave environments as as, as um, places of rituals and ceremonies, to supersizing sacred environments, to you know, to create these incredible stone circle complexes, the earliest earliest megalithic monuments any, anywhere in the world. What motivated these people? What changed to make them do this? You know, I'm not interested really on the, on how they did it like the Great Pyramid. I'm not interested in how they, they they made the Great Pyramid. The fact is they did. What I'm interested in is what motivated them. Why did they do it?
1: Now, in the book, just to remind listeners, which is the, the Cygnus mystery, which, uh, as you pointed out earlier, came out in 2007, you spoke somewhat about the what was then forthcoming 2012 and everything that uh, was possibly associated with that. Uh, Now now that that's behind us, what's your kind of view on just where we are really, you know, compared to where we were before 2012?
0: Well, I mean, the connection between Cygnus and 2012 um, was quite simply the fact that the exponents of the whole Mayan prophecies um, ideas kept emphasising that the the rebirth of the sun that would take place on December 21st, 2012, that the the new sun would actually uh, be reborn from the dark rift of the Milky Way, um, obviously at the time of the winter solstice. And this is part of a belief that has existed in different parts of the world, probably since megalithic times, arguably since the time of Gobekli Tepe. You know, the, the idea that the sun is reborn, from a position coincident to the Milky Way where the, the, dark, the dark Rift ends. But what they didn't emphasise and what I felt needed to be mentioned is that if the Dark Rift was being seen by them as some kind of birth tube, you know, for some kind of cosmic mother uh, represented by the, the, um, the Milky Way, then that birth tube began in Cygnus. So the new sun... Of twenty of of december twenty first the the winter solstice um twenty twelve certainly as far well, as the northern hemisphere is concerned was reborn from sickness uh, and that you know uh, i I felt needed to be mentioned um, and that these people needed to know that um and you know in a way, I think it did catch on i mean the thing was is that off the back of the book, myself and my colleague uh, greg little um from Memphis, um, produced a, um, a DVD uh, called The Cygnus Mystery, uh, which is up online and has had nearly a million um, views. Um, and you can see it there today. I mean, it, it's and it, it's a great thing. It? It's about 45 minutes long and all the ideas that we've been talking about here are up there. And... There's no question that the whole 2012 phenomena really catapulted that and made it, you know, a viral success. No question whatsoever. But post 2012, I never expected anything to happen anyway. I mean, when people would always ask me, oh, what do you think will, will happen in 2012? I said, well, look, I said, the chances are that maybe 20 years later, you'll be able to look back at 2012 and say it all began then, you know, now. Whether that will be the case, we'll have to wait and see. But certainly, I was trying to let people down gently to the fact that nothing big is going to happen on that day. I mean, I've seen too many dates like this come and go. I mean, 1984, 2000 and and, and others besides. And it was pretty obvious that nothing really was going to happen in 2012. And in some ways, it does actually annoy me the fact of how people ride off such dates to you know, to create this scaremongering thing that something horrible or big or massive is going to take place and that to find out more, you know, they've got the answers because it's quite clear that nothing is going to happen. I mean, you know, the aliens didn't come, you know, Atlantis didn't rise, you know, we weren't, you know, uh, uh, taken off the face of the planet by lizard-headed aliens or whatever. I mean, it just didn't happen, you know. And I doubt if it will ever happen, certainly on a prominent day. If anything like that does happen, I don't think anybody's going to be able to predict it. So I don't know. You know, it's one of these. It's a big letdown, I think, ultimately. Um, But I, I hope that the positiveness that came out of it is that all the different rituals and ceremonies and things like that, that presumably went on all the way around the world was almost like this sort of harmonic convergence, which will be the beginning of some kind of shift of consciousness
1: that's what I hope well Andrew as we begin to wrap things up for today um, perhaps you could just say something about uh, as a phrase in the book life's cosmic origins and uh, you hint that this is something going right back to the beginning of our conversation that that our earliest ancestor ancestors somehow perceived and yet we've collectively forgotten about these connections
0: the first two words that come to mind here are ancient aliens. It's a, it's a subject which is so fascinating that we all want to be, we all want it to be real. Um, and I see it as a lot more subtle than this. You know, I believe that human evolution is inspired by something that is beyond this terrestrial life that we exist. Um, now, whether it's extraterrestrial interdimensional or whatever i don't know but it's pure intelligence i think and i think that it exists out there it's probably beyond normal space time and that at certain points in human e- evolution it is able to interject in proceedings and kick start something and that people are able to achieve this when in altered states you know, or certainly in dream states and things like this. And that, you know, we are constantly being affected by intelligences that are beyond this earth itself. Um, but it's a very subtle process. I think it, it's something which relates to something which, as I've mentioned before, something called quantum entanglement, that we are entangled, you know, with, with all life, everywhere. And each other, we're all interlinked in some way, shape or form. Um, And that there are intelligences, perhaps universal intelligences out there that are steering things in the right direction. And that because they're beyond space time, they've been there since the beginning. They're watching us now, almost like a a film being played out. You know, your favourite film, you know, is being played out. And and they just have, have to interject here and there just to make certain that the correct ending comes um, in other words, that, you know, human evolution or life in general evolves in a certain direction and reaches its target at the end of this actual physical universe itself. And I like the idea. I call these intelligences morphians. Um I've written extensively about them and it's a very, very fascinating subject. You know, they're not aliens or anything like that. It's just a concept, an idea. You know, they're almost like watchers of the timeline, if you like. Um, And I personally believe that something like that really exists.
1: Well, Andrew, um, your books are widely available, um, also on your own website. So perhaps you'd like to share information with listeners about that. And also, I know you've got some forthcoming events. You're going to be at this year's Megalithomania and also Glassendry Symposium.
0: Absolutely.
1: Yeah. Um, And I mean, if people are
0: interested in anything that I've talked about today, or happily chat to them, you know, by email.
1: Just come on to AndrewCollins.com um, and take it from there. Excellent. Well Andrew, thank you so very much for joining us today on legalisedfreedom.com. My pleasure. Well folks, that's it for another week. As ever, thank you so much for listening. If you enjoyed this show, you might like to check out my earlier interviews with Robert Shock and James Swagger, both of which explore similar themes, particularly the notion of cosmic rays and radiation affecting human consciousness and evolution, and our ancestors' obsession with the heavens. I'd also urge you to have a look at the website, that's legalizefreedom.com, legalize-freedom.com, where you'll find an archive of programs on many equally interesting and important topics. Until next time, I'm Greg Moffat, and you've been listening to legalizefreedom.com.